Today we are in Acts chapter 15. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, if you're new here, we have a collection of Bibles over there, okay? Um, and some of them are just in English, some are in uh, BM, English Translation Bilingual. We've got Chinese, English uh, Bilingual Bibles as well. We've got straight up Chinese Bibles at the back as well. Straight up BM Bibles at the back as well. So um, if you are bilingual, I really want to encourage you to just engage with the Word of God in your native language also, all right? Now, Acts chapter 15 is fascinating. It's difficult. Um, it's, it, it's, got, it's got all this... It's all this tension going on, right? I'm going to give it to you straight. Acts chapter 15 deals with the, whether it is necessary for Christians to follow Jewish customs, even if they are not Jews, like most, if not all of us. You know, and the issue, the custom um, uh, that is in sharp focus in Acts chapter 15 is circumcision. How many of you think that it's an extremely frightening idea, circumcision, right? Now, I, I, I grew up being aware that my Muslim friends, okay, would start tahun enam, they would all one by one go, you know, disappear from school for one week, you know, and then come back because kena sunat, right? Okay, and I, I remember hearing... Uh, I remember speaking to a doctor friend and my doctor friend uh, was telling me about how uh, every year during certain times, I'd make probably school holidays or something like that, um, be, it'll be like a week of non-stop, every day, multiple little 12-year-old boys coming to the hospital, okay, to get their circumcision done, right? So they couldn't soon not ready, right? And then before, they, before it happens, um, uh, she, this doctor friend told me that there'll be all these boys pressed up against the glass door and with their mothers on the other side and those little boys are like, pressed up going like, da 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 and it's horrifying that when I heard that, I was telling myself, oh my God, so traumatic. I'm so Because for each boy, it's one experience, right? But if you work there in the hospital, you see, you see a whole string of boys for a whole, a whole week of school holidays, you're having that. We just had a school holiday, or we are having a school holiday right now. I don't know, maybe the hospitals were like that over the last week as well. But the question before us is... Do we have to take the blade to make the grade, right? Do we have to get circumcised in order to get right with God? That's the main issue. And I think I can give, I can give away the answers at the start, right? That I'm going to. I'm going to show you the three movements that we're going to be going through today. First movement, I want to take you guys through the Word and do a little bit more teaching, a little bit more uh, uh, understanding of what's going on, right? So what's going on here? Circumcision, but more. Much more than just circumcision. Uh, um, it's really down to a way of life and how God decides He wants to reach the rest of the world. The second movement will deal with what saves and what sanctifies, right? What saves you and what transforms and, and makes you more like Christ. And I've given away the answer, or at least part of the answer, it is not our external performance. It is not that. And the th third movement is what pollutes and what harms 
and what destroys us. And then, I'm just really having a bit of fun here. Um, number six will shock you. Uh, no, there is no, there is no list. It's just a clickbait for fun, you know. Um, uh, if, actually, there is a list of six here. Um, and number six will shock you. <laughs> but let's start. Let's start with what's going on here, right? Um, we are in a study in the series of Acts. And by now, we have just concluded the first missionary journey. Light green indicates them starting their journey. They go to Cyprus. They go all the way up uh, to Antioch. Um, they've come down to Lystra. They got, they got attacked here. They had to run away here. And so the part of the story that we are not going to cover is covered in a just one short paragraph. They go right down over to Derby. And then they reroute backwards. It's a very common thing uh, for Paul on his missionary journeys to having gone from A, B, C, D, E, then he retraces his steps going home, you know, uh, going from E back to D, then C, then B, uh, pretty much like that in the dark green, back to Antioch. So now they are back in Antioch. First missionary journey done. It is the shortest of the three missionary journeys, um, and it's done. Here we are, 15 verse 1. Some men came down from Judea. Now, I just want to clarify this, okay? Judea is actually down here. I don't know why they say men come down from Judea, because technically they're going from south, north. You will see another instance later where they say then they went up to Judea, which is they go from here here, right? And I think I know why. Judea, the Jerusalem, is mountainous. So they are not describing they came down to us or, or the way we say that, oh, I went down to Johor or I went down to New Orleans, you know, um, that way. They are, th talking, they are thinking in terms of elevation. So it's mountainous. Jerusalem is considered a high place, both physically and metaphorically. And so when you come from Judea, to, to Antioch, you're going down from the mountain or down from the hill to Antioch and then you're going back up to Judea, right? Okay, so that's, that's kind of like how the language works. They came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. After Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem about this issue. Okay, so you, you see this is where the issue lies. Unless you are circumcised, say some of the Jews, you can't be saved. You must be circumcised. You want to be a member of Abraham's family. You want to come under Moses. This is a requirement, right? Wajib, right? Now, just geographically, it looks like this. Antioch, Syrian Antioch, down to Jerusalem, or rather up to Jerusalem, and then Jerusalem back down to Syrian Antioch will be the journey they take, right? Now, they are going to Jerusalem. Let's continue reading. When they had been sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria. So Phoenicia and Samaria would be in between. I did not mark them on the map, okay? Um, describing in detail wherever they stopped. So I want you to imagine like you're going to Penang, but you stop in Ipoh, and everybody in, you meet in Ipoh, you're telling them about what happened in KL. 
You're telling them about what happened at Tapa or whatever, you know. So along the way, you're, they're telling stories, okay. And I don't want this little detail to miss, to, 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 to go by you. They're describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. And they brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. Now they're in Jerusalem. When they arrive in Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. Okay, so yes, they do tell the stories of all the joyful things. So I want you to get this idea. There is a squabble over theology all the way in Antioch. They're fighting. They can't agree. Do you circumcise the Gentiles when they come into faith or not, right? Then they say, let's go Jerusalem, let's settle this in the HQ. So they go, and on the way they're like celebrating, telling stories, testifying. Everyone is so excited about the work that God is doing. And then now they finally reach HQ, you know, and do they continue telling the stories? Or do they plunge right into, okay, now for, you know, settling the court case, right? But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders gathered to consider this matter. Now, after there had been much debate, so I want you to be able to see and feel your Bible, okay? Your Bible only records in very, very brief terms what happens. This is probably really fierce debates, okay? Now, I don't know what it could have been like, but if you ask me what, you know, adults with very strong, headstrong adults with strong, passionate views about religion, you know, when you put them into a room and they disagree over a matter, I can only imagine it's hot. I can only imagine it's fiery. I can only imagine that some of them will bang table and say, no, right? And other people will shout and like, no, what are you saying, right? And then like, it's like you can imagine that kind of atmosphere. Maybe more godly than that, I don't know. But after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, wow, the room falls silent when he says, brothers, you are aware that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by mouth of the that by my mouth Peter speaking of himself that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe so now Peter is speaking from personal experience and God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit in other words Gentiles heard the testimony of God they now not just heard, but they also receive the power of the Holy Spirit, just as He also did to us, Pentecost. So there was a Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, right? There is a, 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 a Gentile Pentecost, right? Acts chapter, hey, what was it? Acts chapter what? Gentile Pentecost? Nine? Nine, maybe? Yeah? Uh, my memory fails me. And then now, Peter is saying to them, look, we receive the power of the Holy Spirit. They've received the power of the Holy Spirit. So now, He has made no distinction between us and them. Right? Cleansing their hearts by faith 
I want you to remember this, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, we did cover some of the ground happening here when we looked at, I believe it's Acts chapter 9, when Peter goes to Cornelius. How many of you remember that weekend where we talked about Peter going to Cornelius and how Cornelius, though he was a Gentile, uh, uh, um, he prayed, God heard his prayer, you know, and then Peter has to go and eat with, with people who are non-Jews to eat non-kosher food. That's like asking some of our neighbours to eat non-halal food. It's really uh, uh, um, offensive in some ways. It's really violating of their norms in many ways. But then God says, no, I want you to reach them. And if food is going to divide you, then let food not divide you. Go. I halal can all these things. Go and eat it, right? And that's, why, that's when God says, oh, don't call unclean what God has made Clean. That's quite literally in Malaysian language. I halal kan the food for you. Now go and eat, right? With peace of mind, right? And so if you want to engage a little bit more with this whole idea of whether we are to adopt the customs of the Jews, the first part is actually on YouTube. It's called God Shows No Favorites, okay? Um, let's move on. Now then, Peter continues. So Peter's still giving his speech, okay? Now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples, that is the Gentile disciples? Why are we testing God by putting a yoke on them that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way that they are. And Peter stops and ends his speech, right? On this note, why are we putting a yoke? Why are we making it so hard for them? Why are we raising the bar higher than where God has put it? So he's saying that we've already experienced this. They've come to faith. God has vindicated their salvation by pouring out the Holy Spirit on them. In other words, they, they don't just have the product, they have the receipts to prove that this is a legitimate you know, uh, uh, ownership. God has saved them. God has given them the power of the Holy Spirit to confirm that their salvation is real. And now, why are we trying to tell them there is one more prerequisite that you haven't done? You need to get circumcised. Then you're part of the club. And Pope Peter is saying, no, they're part of the club. Right? If anything... If we keep going on like this, maybe we realize that we have not been in the club at all if we keep on going like this, right? So we have to go on. Verse 12, the whole assembly became silent. So Peter has spoken. I don't, know, I don't think Peter banged table, but Peter has spoken. He sat down. And by the way, this is the exit of Peter from the rest of the book of Acts. He never returns again, right? After the Jerusalem council, he never comes back to the story again. The whole assembly became silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul. And what do Barnabas and Paul do? They're not caught up in this theological debate. Or at least they showed up and maybe, I don't know, they, they had a lot of time traveling from Antioch all the way to Jerusalem to think about the arguments, the theological debate that they're going to have. What will we say? Will we bring up Moses? Will we bring up Isaiah uh, 49? Will we bring up this? Will we bring up that? You know? um, but you know what? By the time it's, when it's time for them to speak, they don't go into all that theological debates. 
they pr pretty much left that to Peter and James who are actually in the HQ. What they do instead is they continue doing what? Sharing about all the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles. So instead of telling them or debating it, they showed them. They showed them by testimony the power of God in reaching the Gentile people. They shared about the people whose lives were saved, how they broke out in tongues, how they this, how they that, the, the, the healings and all the power of God and how people are being discipled and loving God and loving the Scriptures. Like, hey, how to fight? How to turn tongue against that? That salvation, that's showing you manifesting salvation among the Gentile people right there in front of you. So after they stopped speaking, James responds, and James says, brothers, listen to me. This, by the way, is James, the brother of Jesus himself. Okay, so you know Jesus is the eldest brother where Mary was still a virgin. Uh, he was the first son in the household. The subsequent uh, children are all biological children of Mary and Joseph, right? And so James is one of those half-blood brothers of Jesus, right? And so this James responds and says, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has reported, Simeon being Peter, Simon Peter, so he calls him Simeon, okay? Um, uh, Simon Peter, Simeon has reported how God first intervened to take from the Gentiles a people for his name. And the words of the prophets agree with this, right? And Sharma, he's like spitting out Amos chapter 9 just like that. Bang, he comes out, right? Um, after these things, so James is quite something, okay? He's like just... Prophets coming out in citation, you know, without, without pulling up his Bible. After these things, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. I will rebuild its ruins and set it up again so that the rest of humanity, the rest of humanity, not just us, the rest of humanity may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name declares the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. In other words, he's citing Amos 9 to say that, look, all the stories and testimonies you just heard is in agreement with what the prophet said, which is the prophet said this would happen. So I'm telling you, this is legit. Therefore, in my judgment, we should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who turn to God. But instead, we should write to them. And then he gives them a list of things, okay, um, which I don't want to spend too much time on this list, okay, because it's not hard, fast, concrete rule of law. Okay, it's not like constitutional. Okay, it's just giving this to say and use the word abstain. Okay, well, let's just tell them, forget about circumcision. We don't expect them to be circumcised. But where they are gathered, Jews and Gentiles worshipping together, together, mixed, diverse, right? Then let's tell all the Gentiles, hey, be mindful of the Jews among you. And let's not do things that's super offensive, just like maybe you don't, you know, do pop among your Muslim friends, right? And he's saying this, okay, so let's, let's don't do some of these things. Let's don't abstain from things polluted by idols, sexual immorality, from eating anything that's been strangled, and from blood. In other words, eating anything that still contains blood, okay? Uh, just very quickly, now I just said, he didn't give this as a concrete rule, okay? But sexual immorality, he deals with in many other parts of the New Testament. So even if this is weakened, okay, 
the commands about sexual immorality are elsewhere and it's very strong, okay? So this has no impact, okay? Um, things polluted by idols, 1 Corinthians 8 deals more with this issue. So if you want to deep dive into the whole idea of shall we eat things offered at my parents' uh, Chinese New Year Eve punya altar, you know, uh, you want to you deep dive into that, 1 Corinthians 8, and then we can sit down and have a chat about that. The next two, food that's been strangled and food that contains blood, okay? These two commands actually never come back again, okay? So they, they kind of stop here. So some scholars think it's just situational. Uh, some scholars think that it's for all time, you know? And that's why that you may hear some Christians say, oh, I eat the laksa with the with the blood cubes, you know, uh, I ask them to don't put, right? Now, I know Christians who will say, I ask them don't put. I also know Christians who just whack because, maybe because they like it, maybe because to them, they, they, they have a theological way of understanding that that's not, that was meant for a particular thing. Now, let me just explain that viewpoint, okay? We don't have to say yes or no or right or wrong. The idea is this. The situation here is that they are writing to a church in Antioch that is diverse. Christians are now not just Jewish Christians, right? You have a mixture. And so they are writing to say some of these things which are part and very entrenched part of Jewish custom, let's not go in there and push it into their face and do things that are so offensive, you know? Abstain from eating some of these things when you're with them, okay? So, so... The theologian anti Wright describes this as an expedient temporary. In other words, it's just temporary, but it's expedient to do this the right way for now, right? Now, we are not here to debate that, okay? We are here to deal with the real issue. Is there any other requirement for your salvation and for your sanctification? Is it Christ plus, plus, or is it Christ? Dot, right? That's the question. And now we're going to plunge into that. What saves? What sanctifies? I can tell you, it is not external performance. Some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. So there are two levels to this. How are you saved and how are you transformed? Or the word is sanctified. How are you made holy? Righteous, more like Christ. There is the salvation that gets you in and through the door, and then there is the sanctification, the purification, the becoming more like Christ, which is the ongoing process that God does in you, you know, um, until the final day. We are never done with sanctification until God is done with this whole thing, right? And God will keep on working on that all the way. Along the way, we are saved already and then we are being sanctified every day now i just want to settle this very straight up on salvation external acts of spiritual performance can never save you okay salvation is not one it's not obtained by external acts of spiritual performance only belief Confession and allegiance to Jesus saves you. Jesus being Jesus, His saving work on the cross, His death, His resurrection. Belief in that saves you. Confession of that saves you. 
allegiance to that saves you. And these three, your belief, your confession, and your allegiance comes together to make up the umbrella word called faith. The Greek word is pistis. Now you may say that, no, I believe in my heart only. I don't say, I don't feel the need to say, and sometimes I honestly, I feel a little scared to say because people might look at me one kind, but I believe in my heart, right? That's partial of the full expression of the Greek word pistis, faith, right? You can believe in your heart, say with your mouth, and then your rest of your life, you live it as if other things are God. Like, you know, money, fame, your, your own desires, your own way of thinking, your own everything, your own philosophies and everything, right? There's no allegiance to King Jesus. That's not complete. And I don't know if that's saving faith. Saving faith, in fact, I suspect that's not saving faith. Saving faith is faith where you believe and you can confess and the rest of your life backs it up. Your left, the rest of your life is a demonstration of your fidelity to the one you love. Right. So, I want to be very clear and I get this out of the way because we are not going to talk about salvation requirements. We're going to talk about sanctification requirements. Right? We're going to talk about what makes us more like Christ in the day to day how does God make us more like Him right now it's interesting because when Peter gives his speech he says this why are we making it so hard for these guys to be saved and after being saved to be renewed in Christ right why do we make this circumcision why do we put this on them and he says that a yoke on their necks that neither our ancestors nor we could ever bear Okay. That's very strange. I'll tell you why it's strange. Because they've been doing it. They've been getting circumcised for thousands of years. One and a half thousand years, right? About 1,500 years from, from Abraham's time all the way until Jesus. It's been done. So why, what do they mean by saying a yoke that our ancestors could not bear? They've been, they've been getting not so hard, ma, right? 12 years old, go sunat lah, and then come back, you're fine lah. Why so hard to bear, right? Done ready ma, and then the rest of your life, you're circumcised ma, right? It's not like you live with the pain uh, the rest of your life, you don't, right? So why does Peter say that none of us bear it? This requirement, we and our Akonama all could not tahan it. No, they tahan it. They actually get circumcised. So what do they actually mean? Is he talking just purely about physical circumcision? Can't be. Can't be. You know why? Because if it's purely physical circumcision, they've been bearing it for thousands of years, thousand and a half years already. So what are they talking about? Actual physical circumcision among Jewish people never became a successful physical representation of what? The physical circumcision was always meant to be just a metaphor, an example, an external picture of something happening inside. Now, this is just supposed to gambakan that. So what is the that? The that is Deuteronomy 10, deep into Jewish law, right? Going all the way back to Moses. What is this? Therefore, circumcise your hearts. It doesn't say circumcise your foreskin. Huh? It says all the way back to Deuteronomy. 
So you can't say that, oh, it used to be circumcise your body only and then later, New Testament, Paul teach circumcise your heart. No, from Deuteronomy, God has already spoken to them, circumcise your heart and don't be stiff-necked any longer. In other words, the circumcision of the heart does something to break the stubborn spirit inside them. And if you go on reading Deuteronomy 10, this breaking of, of the stubbornness, the stiffness, causes the people, the circumcised in heart people, to do justice to the orphan and widow, to love the foreigner. To do justice to the widow and the orphan, to love the foreigner in their midst, to fear the Lord, and to worship Him. When you are circumcised in your heart, that's how you live. So, the external is not the thing that's transforming them. You see that? The external thing is just a picture. It's a physical reminder. It's like the thing you hang in front of you at your workplace to tell yourself, be kind to someone, right? That's, that's the reminder. But that doesn't make you kind to someone. Be kind to your boss. Tahan your boss one more day. That does not help you tahan your boss one more day. What that helps you tahan your boss is what's happening inside here. Because when you really cannot tahan, it, that, that thing is gone. It's here. This is going to tahan your boss. Or this is going to be kind to someone. Or this is going to love the foreigner. Do justice. Love the orphan. Right? Fear the Lord. Worship Him. It's all happening inside here. So, let me repeat. External acts or not, not so much repeat, I want to show this to you. External acts of spiritual performance will never have the power to truly sanctify you. They will augment your behaviours? Yes. Will they manage your cultural expression? Yes. Can it? It's like trimming leaves and plucking fruits. You can keep on doing it, but if you don't deal with the tree at its root, Whatever keeps coming out will keep coming out. You can just keep, it will keep chugging out, you know, bad fruit, and you keep trimming it and you keep chugging out bad fruit. Why? Because it's a bad tree. Right? And that's the heart of the issue. You are not supposed, well, none of us are called to deal with these things at an external level. They cannot have any power to save you or sanctify you, even or no matter how moral they appear to be how well-intentioned they may be, even how spiritual these external performative acts may be. Now, when God speaks, golden calves get broken. When God speaks, sacred cows get broken. And I believe that God is speaking through Deuteronomy 10, I believe God is speaking through the conflict that we are seeing in Acts 15 and He's going to go after some sacred cows. Even sacred cows in the church. And so I'm going to say this. What does it look like in today's church? If you fast and pray a lot, and I mean a lot, a lot, that does not sanctify you. And that's major sacred cow during 40 days fast and pray. 
We have to know this, huh? we fast and pray, it's not so that we can gain brownie points with God. We fast and pray as an act of devotion to God. Right? Y'all didn't worship just now, Christ is enough for me. You didn't do that for brownie points with God, right? You did that out of an overflow of your love for God, right? And so you, now, I'm just going to exaggerate it a little bit. You can have a bunch of Christians, all of us fasting 40 days, and you know, one person saying that, wow, I'm fasting chicken. You know how hard it is to fast chicken? Everybody going to hot bird and I can't, you know? Next person says, ah, yeah, you fast chicken only. I fast chicken and rice and noodles and bread and pork and everything, yeah. And guy, next person says, that's nothing, yeah. I fast chicken, pork, rice, all that kind of things and water. I fast water, yeah. So actually, everything I've eaten in the last 20, 30 days has just been salad, yeah. And next fella says, ah, that's nothing. You know, I've been fasting. Yeah, I've not eaten a single thing for the last 30 days. I've not drank anything for the last 30 days. And every day, I punch nails into my hands. Yeah, so I can remember the sacrifice of Jesus. Next fella says, ah, that's nothing. For 20 days, every day, I bathe in a pool of cyanide. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and I bask in gamma, infrared kind of like radiation rays, you know, and I memorize 30 chapters of the Torah, yeah. And you listen to all these Christians one-up each other on their 40 days of fasting and praying and your eyes can't even go up. Your eyes are on the ground because you can't match them. And the only prayer you have is, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me a sinner. And Jesus said, out of all of you, I justified this one. I justified this one. Not all of this. This does not save us. This doesn't even sanctify us. This, if you do it at all, is just an overflow of your devotion. Nothing more. What else does it look like in the church? People who minister with signs and wonders. Soaking, man. I used to, I used to be so paise, right? Because all the SIBKL pastors will line up at Bangunan Yin, the front there, when I was back working in the main church. And you have all of them and people come to you and Ma, right, to pray at the altar call. And then, very obvious one, some of them won't come to you. They'll come, and then they'll go. Shukaka, boom, drop ready. Boom, drop ready. Boom, drop ready. And you're like, why I don't have one, huh? Lord Jesus, bless this person. And then you see the fellow, you're a bit, you're like, yeah, come on, come on, come on. Yeah, come on. Then nothing happens. And you're like, this doesn't save us. This doesn't sanctify us. You don't become a better pastor just because you tumpang tangan and people, people go down. This does not. What other, what other sacred cows are there in church? So anointed in worship, right? 
wow, I lead, I sing, my declaration, my everything, so good, so on point, right? I, when I'm in the, in, in this, in, when I listen to worship leader ABC, you know, wow, I really feel like different, but different from CDF, different from EFG, different from XYZ. When ABC leads worship, so anointed, so powerful, right? No, I can tell you, I've met very, very anointed people with an incredible presence, incredible authority, and I've still seen people like that fall. I've still seen people like that retain their anointing, retain their presence, retain their authority in the midst of falling. So this is no indicator of how sanctified you are. I have seen some very unsanctified people or people in a situation of extreme unsanctifiedness but still be able to exercise ridiculous anointing. I don't understand. And another day we can talk about it here, right? Or we can talk about it in small groups. I don't understand fully why God sometimes allows the anointing to keep on going, the ministry of signs and wonders to keep on going, even though behind the scenes they're having an affair, they're embezzling money, all these kind of things is happening, right? I don't understand. But just know, as we are learning our Bibles, this is no indicator of how sanctified you are. This, next one, click properly, yeah. This is no indicator of how sanctified you are. You can hear super preachers mega expositors of the Bible. They're going into everything, the Greek, the Hebrew, the, 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 the whatever, you know, they're like cross-referencing the Bible, like hyperlink, you know, just click, 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 everything is coming out, you know, Amos 9, bang, it all comes out, you know. None of this. It's just skill and learning. It's not an indicator. Even this. Even this. I serve in community one. Wow, all, all, all of you are, you're, you're should really come out to community. Don't just sit in, the, in, 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 in church, you know. Don't just, uh, uh, every day, learning only, every day in your holy huddle. You all should come out to community. Yeah. Even this is not an indicator. Even though, you know what? I love it that our church would have anointed worship leaders and have preaching and teaching in cell groups that's really powerful and have the, the expression of signs and wonders at our altar calls and we have people going out to the ministry to really love um, those in, uh, 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 in need of mercy and justice. I would love for all these things to happen. So good at everything. And so many times, even more so in recent history, we confuse mega competencies in running church with a holy life, with a sanctified person. And then we see superstar pastors falling, fall to this, fall to that. And then we say, how? He was such a good apologist. How? He had such a gift in reaching out to celebrities. How? He was such an anointed preacher. It's because we confuse the KPIs of the world. Our eyes become so seduced by the success, by the growth, by the numbers, by the tithes and offerings pouring in, 
by the number of salvations and baptisms, by the number of seats that get filled, we become so seduced by all the external expressions of supposed spiritual work. But let's remind ourselves all over again, no matter how moral, how well-intentioned, or even how spiritual, none of these things have the capacity to truly sanctify you. Acts chapter 15 issues was circumcision. That was their sacred cow. No one could touch circumcision. You don't just simply, simply take circumcision out of the equation and survive. They'll take you to Jerusalem and duke it out there, which is what they are doing right now. In our modern day, in Malaysia at least, circumcision is not the issue. But those other things are the issues, and many more. I just don't have time to go through everything. What then does sanctify you? We are sanctified by the Holy Spirit through an encounter with the Word of God. Full stop. Romans chapter 15 says this, Yet I have written you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Paul goes on to say, he gave me, God gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God. What is Paul's role? He goes from town to town to town. He starts off in a synagogue. He ends up in the marketplace proclaiming the word of God. So that, the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Who sanctifies you? The Holy Spirit. What's the process that leads to the sanctification by the Holy Spirit? Exposure to the Word of God. Are you exposed to the Word of God? You are now. Are you constantly exposed to the Word of God? I hope you will be. If you only make yourself read your Bible, will that sanctify you? Now I'm asking you this, because you got to square this off. When you do your devotional time, is that like you just have a really rigid, really highly disciplined regimen of reading your Bible because you must make yourself expose yourself to it and then you say, this sanctifies me. But isn't that an external act of spiritual performance as well? That's where it's going to get tough. And I don't have tidy answers for you. I can only say that if you are reading just for the sake of reading, if you are reading just for the sake of being able to check the box, I read my Bible again. I read my Bible. I'm reading two. Then I'm reading three. Then I'm reading ten. Then I'm reading twenty-five. And it becomes a competition all over again. Then maybe you're on the road towards your Bible not sanctifying you because you're doing it as part of... No different from fasting, no different from praying 50 hours a day, that kind of thing, right? But if you're reading, because each time you read, God grows a hunger and thirst in you for more of God. And then behind the Word, there is a God that you are encountering, the Word of God made flesh. You are encountering Jesus and every time you go back to your Word, it's for an encounter with a person, not just with print, but with a person that will sanctify you. And we land here on what pollutes 
and what harms. And I only have one slide for this, so there's no number six. What pollutes and harms is a culture that promotes at least three of these things. A scorecard keeping of each other's morality. That will pollute the church. That will pollute the community. A pyramid of spirituality. There's all the really... The John Mulindis, yeah, they're up there. The, the, who else, right? The John Pipers, they're all called John. I don't know why. Um, uh, that, that, they are spiritual. We are just the ordinary, like we're nothing. Those guys are the power, power. We always talk about Christian celebrities like that. We use words like, wow, oh, they're so power, power. They're so up there. They're so gang, you know? Hey. Jesus doesn't talk about himself or any of his key disciples. He doesn't say, your Peter and your James and your Paul and your these fellas, they are the power, power and the very king one. He doesn't. He doesn't. If anything, Jesus showed them up for being absolutely ordinary. A culture that promotes a glorification of high performers. That will kill a church so fast. It's so venomous. So venomous. So I'm going to go into each of these and just unpack them a little bit. And I'll show you where in the Bible we see this. Scoring each other's morality. We could easily do that in 40 days. Because huh? like, you're like sitting around Sunday, well not fasting on Sunday, afterwards King's Table, all makaning, right? So it's kind of like de depressurize a little bit. Hey, for the rest of the week, how are you fasting? Huh? Oh yeah, uh, there you go. La. There you go again, la, right? And then you're like, oh yeah, I'm fasting. Um, uh, one meal a day. Oh, okay. Then you like quiet. How about you, right? Naturally, you reciprocate, right? How about you? Oh, um, uh, I'm on water only. Good for you. I give you a clap, right? And unspoken, we are ranking each other. We are ranking, we are like, wow, this guy. You meet someone else who's like, yeah, I bathe in a bath of cyanide every day. <laughs> and we are scoring each other. We go around and we're like, hey, what, tell, me about your, tell me about your spiritual disciplines. I want to learn. Actually, you don't want to learn. You just want to know. <laughs> oh, I read four chapters a day. I pray for half an hour. That, that culture is Pharisee culture. The Pharisees established an ecosystem where everyone did that because they did that. And now maybe everyone else was afraid to do that because they could never, they could never have their name placed on the upper rungs, right? That's why they, are, they were all like thrown at the bottom. Their names are all really low because they couldn't. The bar was set and the culture is established such that you just can't live up to how dang some of these people are going to be. 
But the worst part is that everyone is secretly scoring each other. You see, there's this, this mentality of like, wow, you are here. Wow, you are very clever. Wow, you are, you're very powerful. Wow, this person are very good at fasting. You know, wow, you know, this fellow very good at praying. You know, wow, eight hours on the trot. Way. Yeah, hey, I got kids to feed. I got this to do. I got like errands to run. No, this fellow does it anyway. Yeah. And then when he's like driving, he's also praying. And when he's like, okay, la, okay, la, good, la, you win. Right, you win, right? And then we rank, oh? we rank each other, oh? we're scoring each other, and we have a scorecard. If I ask you who is the most holy people in SRBKL, you show me like your scorecard, I show you my scorecard. Maybe all our scorecards will reveal all the same names. Why? Because our mentality is like that. We're just looking at all these external things. Now, there are people who pray, there are people who fast, there are people who do all these kind of things, and it's great, but it's us. As, people, as observers, we do really stupid things in the way we observe people and start ranking each other and start scoring points and then we establish, before you know it, a pyramid of spirituality, right? With certain people being the apex predator in spirituality and then other people being like, oh, they're just ordinary people, man. You don't want them. Yeah, you don't want them in your group, you know. They, 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 they don't pray. They don't know any of these things. In fact, they're quite worldly one. And we use words like that. Oh, this fella, quite worldly one, right? And this fella, uh, very carnal one, you know. Does Jesus talk like that? Go read your Gospels again. No, really, saturate yourselves with Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and feel how Jesus talks about people. Do that again. Jesus does not talk about people like that. Does he talk about Zacchaeus like that? The Mark 8 woman who was caught in adultery, does he talk about her like that? Right? The Samaritan woman at the well, John 4, does he talk to her like that? He doesn't. Who talks about people like that? Pharisees talk about people like that. Pharisees scorecard each other on spiritual things. Pharisees have a pyramid of spirituality so that they get to be at the top and be the apex predator. Pharisees are the ones who end up glorifying and having a culture that glorifies high performers. That's not Jesus' culture. That's not Jesus' way. I tell you what this looks like. Huh? You can be really competent and then we give you a role. And you can be really competent in that role. And then we call it leadership. And then you can be really good at leading other people to become really competent in your role. And then we confuse that with spirituality. And we confuse it with spiritual maturity. That's not spiritual maturity doesn't mean that if you're really competent, you can't be spiritually mature. Right? That's not what I'm saying. I've also met people who are extremely competent and are also very spiritually mature and really very grounded and really genuinely very godly and very broken. And when I meet people like that, I really enjoy being with them because there's such a humility behind all that, all that competency. But just because someone is extremely competent, especially even in church, doesn't mean that they have the character that God approves of. And we need to be very careful about that. I could be saying this in a leaders' meeting so that our leaders can understand that this is the criteria that we raise people into leadership over. Not just about, wow, you're so good at these things. Let me give you a leader badge. 
It's not. It's not. And our contemporary culture too often hands out authority, dignitary, honour, respect, and position to people in any kind of environment, whether it's in ministry or not, even though they don't have the character for it. We did not learn from Clinton. So that in 2016, we somehow managed to one-up Clinton. And then we have Christians saying that even though this guy violates every single value that Jesus represents, I believe he is God's anointed. Dude, does it sicken you? I didn't even mean to go here. I know that this is maybe another sacred cow. Okay, when God speaks, He enters sacred cows, right? Does it sicken you? Just because people have the right competencies and the right bravado and the right personality type and the right courage to do things that you wish your hero would do, you can label them the Lord's anointed. i tell you why I dare to go into this and tell you it sickens me. The Lord's anointed is Jesus. That's why when I hear people saying that this is the Lord's anointed, it sickens me. Because this is not the Lord's anointed. The Lord's anointed is very different. He's very different. He's humble. He's lowly. He dies for people he loves. He allows himself to be subject to ridiculous amounts of pain and torture and even when he has the authority to defend himself, he doesn't. He goes to the cross instead. He works with love. He works with humility. He works with self-sacrifice. He works with gentleness and kindness and he only reserves his most hard and harsh side on the hypocrites who produce this kind of culture. And for everybody else who is downtrodden in sin and brokenness and, and misery and and inability to step out of their, their sinful life, he shows them love and patience and, 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 and he pursues them like that one sheep that keeps running away and he keeps going out there to rescue them and rescue them and rescue them. He's constantly, that's my anointed. I think that is your anointed too. I hope that's your anointed one. I hope your anointed one, you, you know what? You should expect better of yourself. You deserve better for yourself and you should expect more of yourself in who you pick as your anointed one. Pick Jesus. Don't pick anyone else other than Jesus. No one else can match Jesus. No one else should match Jesus. Jesus and Jesus alone. Not Jesus plus as well. Sometimes we like to add things to Jesus. So that Jesus plus more cool, Jesus plus more hip, Jesus plus more tolerant, Jesus plus more whatever, or Jesus minus, right? Jesus minus some of those harsh things he said to the Pharisees. Jesus minus uh, uh, um, uh, some of these things that he said about the cost of following him. Jesus minus some of these things. No, not Jesus plus, not Jesus minus, just Jesus. Christ is enough for me. That's why we sing that song. Christ is enough for me. But you can't orientate your life, you can't orient your life and walk by saying Christ is enough for me if you don't know Christ. 
you need to know your Christ. Because if you don't know your Christ, then you start calling other people anointed ones. And you end up with counterfeit heroes and counterfeit gods. And we don't want that. You want to love Jesus and Jesus alone. And then out of your love for Jesus, then you have love and tolerance and goodness and kindness for everyone else. But it all comes from the overflow of loving Jesus. So Christ alone should be your reward, the joy of your salvation. No one, nothing else, no one else should be able to satisfy, make you feel poise. Right? So can I have the worship team on stage? Church, I want you to take your eyes off this pulpit. I want you to take your eyes even off the slide. We can just take the slide off the screen. I want you to turn your eyes to Jesus. And ask yourself, do I know this God? And I want you to ask yourself, do I really, how much do I know this God? How well do I know this God? And I want you to ask yourself, how do I come to know this God? I can tell you, you can start to know Him by exposing yourself to the rays of light of the sun as revealed in Scripture. Now that may or may not be eventually sanctifying you, but that will give you an idea about who the Christian God is and who Jesus is. And I want you to expose yourself to the rays of this sun long enough so that you really come to know Him. You know what makes Him angry. You know what makes Him heartbroken. You know what He stands for and you know what He can't stand. Get used to Him. Come to know Him. Become familiar with Him until you don't even have to ask or think twice about what He wants, what He, what he desires. You deeply know Him, therefore you deeply know His will and you deeply know His ways. And that's my charge to you, church. Come to know your anointed one, Jesus Christ, who died for you. Come into a deeply knowing and known relationship with Him. And then you can say, after you know Him, Christ, truly enough for me. For in my own weakness, God is made strong. Jesus Christ will be enough for you, my friends. But the right Jesus, the true Jesus, the Jesus as revealed in Scripture, not the one of our imagination. So I'm just going to step off. Lionel's going to lead us into worship. As you feel the desire in your heart to say, yes, I want to know Jesus more, I want you to rise to your feet. But don't just rise for the sake of rising. I want you to rise to your feet when you can say, God, this rising is my way of saying, I want to know you more. I just really want to know you more. I don't know what I'm going to discover, but I want to know you more. Hallelujah. Amen.